to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Everyone is talking about the election on Tuesday and about the results. So I'm not going to, at least not until the end of the show, because I want to spend the next hour, or most of it, talking about how in the world we got here to this point in our history. There is a war raging on our streets, in our cities, and throughout our country. And it's been allowed to get so out of control that it's not clear that it's going to stop anytime soon. How did we get here? And where is it leading us? 2020, at least since the end of January, has been a nightmare for most Americans. The China virus that took us all by surprise, that kept most Americans trapped at home for far longer than they wanted to be, and and made their lives, for some of them, miserable, a living hell from which they couldn't escape. They couldn't work, so they didn't get paid, so they couldn't pay their rent or feed their families. Like I said, a living hell. So that was one thing. But it didn't stop there because then there was the death of George Floyd and others. And our cities exploded. The anarchists and the rioters, they descended on the streets of New York and San Francisco and Milwaukee and Portland, Oregon and Seattle. And they rioted under the banners of Antifa and Black Lives Matter. They broke into major department stores and little mom and pop stores. They stole everything they could and they smashed what they couldn't steal. They shouted, Black Lives Matter! And they burned and destroyed the dreams of hardworking men and women, including black men and black women who had invested their lives in their little stores and it all went up in smoke. I guess these black lives didn't matter so much, not to the looters, not to the arsonists and the destroyers. In New York City, they conned the mayor into painting their mantra, Black Lives Matter, on the streets of the city in huge yellow letters. He called it a mural. I call it graffiti and, and political manipulation. They conned him because Black Lives Matter, the organization, was founded by Marxist organizers. And anyone who thinks that these three women are really devoted to nonviolence, well, they'd better think again, because Marxist activism embraces violence. It's a tool of Marxist ideology and strategy. We'll talk a little more about that in a bit. But Black Lives Matter has toned down its website and removed references to its Marxist roots because their Marxist affiliations became public. And that became an embarrassment to them when they were trying to hold themselves up as champions of the long-suffering black community. But the truth is, their mission as Marxists and trained community organizers is to sow havoc in our communities 
and turn America into a socialist country. And if that requires violence, so be it. And they are gathering steam, as we have seen. Antifa, BLM have started to instigate riots and chaos as a step in the process of making America something very different from what it was intended to be. If you live in any of the dozens of U.S. cities where the riots have been taking place, you may have spent months and months living with riots, looting, fires, destruction of property and livelihoods. Maybe you were even afraid to go outside because the streets had become so dangerous. And every time a black person was killed by a cop, another riot began. It didn't matter if it was justified or not. It wasn't spontaneous. These riots, wherever they pop up, are well planned. All they need is a spark in search of a gas leak. Light the spark and the rioters will come. The leaders of the riots are well organized and well paid, supported by shadowy figures with deep pockets. When did America get so bad, so horribly violent? When did Americans become so intolerant? How did America go so horribly wrong? It's amazing, really. In the name of social justice, liberal Americans are holding anyone who doesn't agree with them in contempt. They're willing to hate you in the name of social justice, not because you don't believe in everyone having the same rights under the Constitution, but because you don't agree with them. This didn't come from thin air. It's something that has been building for many years. So here's a little history, American history for the 21st century. Marxian socialism. It didn't just spring up in the U.S. full-blown in the 21st century, or even in the 20th century. It actually has its roots back in the 1850s, when the Marxian Socialist Unions were formed. Their leader was Eugene V. Debs, who was inspired by the works of Karl Marx. In 1901, he founded the first Socialist Party of America. And according to ushistory.com, by 1912, that party already had 120,000 members. And in that year, it won elections for 160 councilmen, 145 aldermen, one congressman, and 56 mayors in cities around the country, including Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Berkeley, California, and Schenectady, New York, all of whom ran on the socialist ticket. Debs himself ran for president five times. He believed what he called, quote, the emancipation of the working class and the brotherhood of all mankind, unquote. He led a movement that created industrial unions and led to the adoption of progressive reform social, and economic. But Debs 
wasn't the only notable proponent of socialism. Another voice in the socialist movement was the author, Upton Sinclair. In 1905, he founded the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, which had chapters in many of the leading universities. They discussed the new gospel according to St. Mark's, meaning, of course, mm-hmm. Karl Marx. Universities were considered very fertile ground for nurturing progressive thought. So that was the birth of socialism in America more than a hundred years ago. In 1944, the term creeping socialism was coined by author F.A. Hayek in his book, The Road to Serfdom. In his book, he warned about how America was drifting toward a socialist society. This was 1944. And of course, we all know about the book 1984 by George Orwell that talked about a horrible dystopia that he imagined could be the product, the ultimate end of the kind of tyranny that we saw in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union. At the end of the Second World War, the United States and Soviet Russia entered into the Cold War, in which the two superpowers vied with each other They had an intense rivalry for global superiority. Here in the United States, the government worried that communist and leftist sympathizers inside America might be actively working as Soviet spies and actually pose a national security threat. In the early 1950s, a phenomenon known as the Red Scare gripped much of America. The House Un-American Activities Committee in the U.S. Congress focused their proceedings on exposing communists who might be working inside the government. They also investigated people who might be working in the Hollywood film or other industries. One of the leaders in this panic, whose name became synonymous with it, was Senator Joseph McCarthy. Waving a piece of paper in the air, he said, He had a list of 205 known members of the Communist Party who were working and shaping policy in the State Department, and it became a witch hunt. Many innocent lives were disrupted and destroyed because of false accusations that caused them to lose their livelihoods, and some even went to prison because they were falsely accused of being involved with an ideology that they were told supported, quote, the violent overthrow of the American government, unquote. It was a witch hunt. But that is not to say that there wasn't a real threat. There was a real threat. Congress just followed the wrong warpath and totally missed the real threat. The Communist Soviet Union was, in fact, sending sleeper spies into the United States to work within local communities to subtly change our thinking from suspicion to acceptance to slowly morph American society from a free society into an ideologically socialist society that would accept first socialism and then communism. For many years they went unnoticed and they hid in plain sight within our communities all around the country. 
Their mission is to destroy our liberty and take down the American system. So let me tell you about one man who knew all about this program because he was brought up in the communist system and he worked for the KGB. Yuri Bezmenov was the son of a high-ranking Soviet general. He was a KGB trainee in the early 1960s. And when he was finished with his training, he worked as a Soviet press officer and a public relations agent for the KGB in India, in New Delhi. His mission was to slowly establish a so-called sphere of influence using propaganda and subversion. He became disillusioned with communism and he saw the Soviet system as ruthless and deceitful. So in February 1970, he put on a disguise and joined a tour group from Canada that was visiting India. With their help, he escaped to Athens, Greece, and then the CIA helped him to defect to Canada. Before he died in 1993, he used to give lectures and interviews about how the Soviet Union has been trying to undermine other countries and replace democratic systems with socialist systems based on socialist ideology. In 1984, he gave an interview to G. Edward Griffin, and this is what he said about Soviet subversion of the free press in America. He said, quote, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. Only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage and such. The other 85% is a slow process that we call either ideological subversion or active measures or psychological warfare, unquote. In that same year, 1984, Bezmenov revealed to the Washington Post that the presence of a Soviet cruise ship in Los Angeles during the 1984 Summer Olympics was not at all what it seemed. It appeared to be there under the pretense of providing entertainment, but actually it had electronic surveillance equipment aboard in order to monitor radio and telephone communications. Their mission was to carry out espionage using Soviet foreign journalists and other personnel in order to, quote, provide better control against the possible athletic defections, unquote. So here's what Bezmenov tried to teach us. There are, he said, four stages in the Marxist playbook that are the basis of their takeover strategy. The first, he said, is to rewrite history, take away the heritage of a people, and they are easily persuaded, unquote. Sound familiar? By rewriting history and making it something to be ashamed of, they demoralize the people. They make them ashamed. Bezmenov said that this is a process by which the schools are controlled by disciples of the leftist thought who would be indoctrinated in values that are diametrically opposed to those of our American tradition. And this applies to all education, from kindergarten right through university and beyond. Bezmenov said that student radicals would begin to control the educational institutions 
And their project would be to throw out the fundamentals of our Judeo-Christian moral heritage and that they would stop teaching traditional classical education and instead they would teach our children to despise our American patriotism. Does that sound familiar? This has already happened. We see it in our own children who scoff at patriots and disrespect our flag and our national anthem. And this is just the beginning. We're going to talk some more about this after the break because it's such an important subject and something that we really need to wrap our heads around because if we do not understand it, if we do not accept that this is happening, we will never be able to fight it or fix it. We owe it to our children to do better, far better than we have done until now. Now I'll be back right after the break and we will get right back into this. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot sleep. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Now, before the break, I was talking about how Marxist theory has invaded our schools as they have applied the first step in their four-step program to take over our country. They started in the schools. Do you have any question that this has already happened or that it has seriously changed the education that our children are getting? We've already seen at least two generations of children pass through an educational system that has been deeply infected by socialist propaganda. And our children are failing. They're not coming up to any standards that are reasonably acceptable in a highly educated country. And that's what America is supposed to be. These graduates of socialism, step one, 
are what I call the entitled generation. They're entitled to be present, but they don't have to do anything. They don't have to compete. They don't want to compete. They're perfectly content to be present. They're being taught to be fair. They're being taught to be unprejudiced, but they're not getting an education. And they're well on their way to denying their American heritage in favor of social justice. How have our children been turned into socialist disciples? Let's just look at their education. Our children no longer read classical authors like Homer or Dickens or Shakespeare. I know the language has changed a little bit. It's a little hard to read. But there's a lot to learn from these authors and all the others beside them. Our children no longer learn grammar, how to speak properly. And today we are told that teaching grammar to black children is racist. And our children no longer study history, not the history of the world or the history of our own country. What little history they do learn is distorted by political theory. So they learn about the crimes of white men against black men and women. They learn history that has been rewritten and distorted in order to put forward a political agenda at the expense of truth. Our children are no longer taught to think critically. So instead of learning long-cherished religious values, they're taught to kneel at the altar of social justice, LBGTQ rights, and intersectionality. Many of them have become really dysfunctional in the real world. And the last generation of children who went through this anti-learning process have become teachers themselves and are now teaching the new generation of students. Just take a look at the young people rioting in the streets, tearing down historical statues and monuments, or screaming in the most vile language for the destruction of our democracy. They don't know a thing about history. They haven't a clue. If you ask them to tell you the capital of the state, or the name of our vice president, or the name of their congressman, they won't be able to tell you. Instead, without any real knowledge of history or its role in our life, they're tearing up our past and destroying our future. And it's not only in our schools, by the way, but in our media as well. The media refuses to acknowledge that there's even a problem, and they promote the demands of the left while disparaging or ignoring any other point of view. Like the teachers who have been indoctrinated by socialist propaganda, the current stars of the media are all too often products of the same educational system. They, too, are the entitled ones. They're ready to accept that American history has been corrupt and hateful. They're willing to agree that the sins of our forefathers, who created and built this country, must be erased from our history. They have forgotten the words of Santayana, who said that those who don't remember history are destined to repeat it. So the history that the teachers refuse to teach or even acknowledge is one in which the greatness of our forefathers can and should be remembered even though they were imperfect 
and accepted the unacceptable, slavery, because they had not yet progressed to a higher sensibility relating to people who were different from them. The beauty of America is that because of men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who did own slaves, but were able to achieve greatness by collaborating in the creation of this great country, because of them, we were able to evolve into a nation that considered the ownership of another human being to be an abomination. And when we refuse to teach our children about this process and about the greatness of these men, we deprive them of their heritage. It is important for them to know how we have developed into a people with a higher morality because of the foundation that men like them laid for us in America. When our football heroes take a knee during the national anthem, they are disrespecting our nation, and we know that the Marxists have been successful in their work. And when young people riot in the streets and set the stars and stripes on fire, we know the Marxists have taken another step closer to destroying the things we cherish most. The thing about socialism, though, is that it doesn't work. It depends on keeping the masses of population down in order to protect the power of the ruling classes. To find an example of how socialism fails, how it doesn't work, we have only to look at Venezuela, once one of the wealthiest countries in South America. That was only 20 years ago. In 2001, the country's duly elected president, Hugo Chavez, used something called the Enabling Act and that allowed him to enact laws without legislative approval, and he enacted more than 49 laws through which he was able to redistribute land and wealth and consolidate his own power. Chavez died of cancer in 2013, and he was succeeded by Nicolas Maduro, who continued to drive the economy of Venezuela into the ground. His presidency has been plagued by hyperinflation, Massive currency devaluation, shortages of food and medicine, severe shortages that drove former middle-class residents to scrounge for food in the garbage, and political violence, including an attempted coup. So in 20 short years, Venezuela has gone from being a capitalist country that was one of the richest countries in South America to a socialist country that is one of the poorest and the United Nations estimates that at least 3 million Venezuelans have fled the country entirely because of the scarcity of food and medicine, hyperinflation, and political violence. And my guess is that there are probably many more who would have escaped had they been able to, had the borders with their neighboring countries not been sealed. If we can look back at history with a critical eye, we're likely to find out pretty quickly that socialism is not a panacea for anything. It is no less corrupt than any other system, but more important, it doesn't work. And it hasn't worked in any nation that has tried it. Not in the Soviet Union, where it failed. Not in Cuba, where it is continuing to fail. Not in Venezuela. And not even in China, where the economy depends on the theft of ideas from other countries and where people are spied on and where the government keeps millions of people in concentration camps and subjects them to unimaginable oppression and torture. 
because in addition to its socialism, its communism, the Communist Party of China is brutal and cruel. It too has failed. Socialism is not American in any of its forms. And yet members from our own Congress are promoting a socialist agenda. People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, who shamelessly promote socialism as a solution to everything from climate change to social justice, they live the good life, the life that they think they're entitled to, but don't think the rest of us really need. They are themselves the products of our hijacked educational system. They belong to the entitled generation, and somehow they believe this is a good thing for America. So have the Marxists succeeded, or are we winning? It's true that we won the Cold War. We defeated the Soviet Union, and we were not transformed into a socialist state. Not yet. When it really mattered before, when the Soviet Union was our adversary, we had a strong patriot in the White House, Ronald Reagan. And when he said in a speech in West Berlin in June 1987, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He turned the Cold War around. His defiance and his personal commitment to American democracy, they defeated the Soviet Union. And we did not fall. They did. But that was more than 30 years ago. And now we have a new war on our hands. And it's right here in America, on our streets, in our cities. And it's getting worse every day. Maybe you think it could never happen here, that we could never lose the freedoms that are guaranteed by our Constitution. But some of the products of Soviet duplicity and the planting of spies and sleepers in our country are now sitting in Congress and rioting in our streets. Ronald Reagan once warned us that, quote, freedom is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction. It's not ours by inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation, for it comes only once to a people. Those who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again, unquote. So now we are at that crossroads where we must choose our fight. The outcome of this election that just passed may not be known for days or weeks, but the future of our nation hangs in the balance, and whichever way the pendulum swings, it will determine the future of our country for a long, long time. Well, I've gotten a bit off topic. I was telling you about the four steps in the Marxist playbook that are used to take over a country. And we only did one. The first step, to rewrite history and demoralize the population. So what is number two? What is the second step in the Marxist playbook? Besmanov described the second step as a rapid decline in society, in its economy, in its military, and in its international relations. In other words, it's all about destabilization. We've seen that during the last three and a half years as Democrats, particularly under the heavy hand of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who has hamstrung the lawmakers and held back funding on many different projects, not the least of which was the support funding for the victims of the China virus. 
She refused to allow that to pass. While millions of people continue to suffer because they cannot go to work and they cannot afford to pay for their rent or feed their families. And then, just last week, Congresswoman and member of the squad, Elon Omar, said, quote, We are fighting to tear down systems of oppression that exist in housing, in education, in health care, in employment, and in the air we breathe, unquote. She also said that it was time to guarantee homes for all, and she supports the Green New Deal because, she said, we know that the environmental racism is real. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression, wherever we find it, unquote. She doesn't want much, does she? But her system will bankrupt the country, and that's the whole point. And it falls right in line with the Marxist agenda to hit the economy and break the system that supports liberty. And, by the way, if you want to criticize her, remember this. She's not only a woman, but she's black, she's Muslim, and she is an immigrant, possibly an illegal immigrant. So if you want to criticize her, be prepared to be called a racist. This is the way society crumbles, and it's all part of the Marxist plan. Here's step three. It's called crisis, and we've had plenty of those over the last three and a half years. The Russia-Russia crisis, the impeachment crisis, and the manufactured constitutional crisis where the president was accused of crimes he didn't commit, the pandemic and the lockdown crisis, the mask and PPE crisis where there weren't enough to go around, the Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots crisis as they continue to burn down whole neighborhoods in countless American cities? We have more than enough crises to share. And here's the question of the day. How many of these crises were manufactured by people who want this country to fail? Here's a hint. Virtually all of them. So are the Marxists succeeding? Are they planning and ready to respond to an event such as the killing of George Floyd, to trigger a planned riot in which anarchists and gangs are paid good money to go quickly to the scene and start a riot. Does this sound far-fetched? Trust me, it is well-documented. And frankly, it scares the heck out of me because something this well-organized does not spell good news for our country. And what do you think is the fourth and last step? They call it normalization, and that means that all these changes, planned and organized, are the new normal. And we get used to the changes, and we get used to the high taxes and the loss of freedom, our history rewritten and our heroes gone, single-payer health insurance is here to stay, and no, you can't keep your old plan, and no, you can't choose your own doctor. Your job is gone, so you have to live on government handouts. This, my friends is a revolutionary moment in American history, and we will ignore it at our peril. One of our most serious problems is that the fourth estate, the press, has become a fifth column in our own country, trying to undermine the solidarity of American democracy and replace it with a form of socialism that will destroy everything that has made our country great. Are they doing the Marxist work for them? Even though they, the press may be the first to feel the pinch of censorship. The really dangerous part of all this 
is that many of us who still believe in America as it was meant to be still also believe that it cannot be undone, that our freedoms cannot be taken away from us, and they are wrong. We just have to look back at history in Europe less than a hundred years ago. The story of the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler's Third Reich is one we should pay close attention to. It's an important one because the Weimar Republic was set up to be a democracy with a constitution that guaranteed free speech, freedom of assembly, and much more. But a series of black swans, an overwhelming debt, and an ambitious and power-hungry Austrian who was full of hate took advantage of every weakness and overwhelmed the democracy using the democratic process to assume power and start World War II and the Holocaust. I'll get on with this story right after the break. If you haven't heard it, or even if you have, it's one worth listening to. Lots of things we can learn here, and we'd better learn fast. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So before the break, I said that it is possible for us to lose our freedoms more quickly than you might think. And here is a story about how a democratic country became a fascist country in a very short period of time. A few black swans and a dedicated zealot was all it took. Following the end of World War I, Kaiser Wilhelm II, the last German emperor or Kaiser and king of Prussia, abdicated his throne and Germany became the Weimar Republic. Friedrich Ebert was elected president and a constitution was adopted that, among other things, guaranteed to the people of the Weimar Republic the right to freedom of expression, to peaceful assembly, freedom of religion, 
free and mandatory state-run public education for children, the right to own private property, and the right to equal opportunity and earnings in the workplace. It all sounded wonderful, and the German people believed it, and they thought it would last forever, and they felt safe. But a series of black swans disrupted everything. The war had just ended. Germany was ordered to take responsibility for World War I, relinquish some of its territory, reduce its military, and pay monstrous reparations to the Allies. Germany was also prevented from joining the League of Nations. So, as a result of these decisions, Germany faced enormous economic challenges after the war, and the worst of these was hyperinflation. The Treaty of Versailles reduced Germany's ability to produce coal and iron ore, which is where they got their revenues from. War debts and reparations drained its treasury, and the German government was unable to pay its debts. And because of that, French and Belgian troops invaded Germany's main industrial area. That made things worse. The German workers were ordered by the government to go on strike. That made things even worse. Because when they did that, they shut down the factories and Germany's economy began to fail very rapidly. So the Weimar government printed more money and devalued the German mark so much that inflation grew uncontrollably. The cost of living rose so rapidly and the value of the German mark depreciated so fast that many people lost everything they had. So in 1923, the League of Nations asked American banker Charles Dawes to design a plan that would help Germany recover. The Dawes plan worked. It helped stabilize the Weimar Republic and started to revive its economy. And the Weimar Republic was finally allowed to join the League of Nations. But then another black swan event happened that affected the world. On October 29, 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed and sent the world's economy into a tailspin. America stopped sending its dollars to Germany, and the Weimar Republic could no longer meet its financial responsibilities. Throughout the country, businesses failed, unemployment became epidemic again, and Germany fell into another huge economic crisis. The German people were demoralized. They, they blamed the fall of their fortunes on the government. And by 1932, the Nazi party had become the largest political party in parliament. There was a brief struggle for power, but in the end, Hitler was named chancellor in January 1933. In a matter of weeks, he began to eliminate many civil rights that had been guaranteed in the Constitution. In March, he introduced the Enabling Act. Remember, we talked about that before with Hugo Chavez. This Enabling Act allowed Hitler to pass laws without the Parliament's approval. And once it became law, he was free to legislate as he saw fit, and his dictatorship became a reality without any of the checks and balances that had been built into the 1919 Constitution. The similarities between then and now are stark, although there are many differences as well. 
The point is, though, that if we think that what happened in Germany could never happen here, we are dead wrong. President Reagan once said, quote, If we lose freedom here, there is no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth, unquote. Now, I promised to say a few words about the election, and so I shall. This was an election like no other election in our history. From the beginning, the animosity ran like lava down from a volcano, spewing hot ash on everything in its way. The primaries were even meaner than the ones in 2016. That year, it was the Republicans who had lots of candidates. At one point, there were 17 Republicans vying for the presidency at one time. And someone asked me, a Democrat, of course, which one of those clowns are you going to support? <laughs> but this year, the Democrats beat them by a country mile. They had 27 candidates, and it was a mess. The Iowa caucus was the first primary race, and many of the candidates made their way out to Des Moines for the Iowa State Fair in August. Some were slinging hot meat on the grill. Some just walked around shaking hands with anybody they could. In the end, Joe Biden was the last man standing. I can't figure it out. Out of 27 candidates, Joe Biden was the second oldest and seemed to have none of the energy or enthusiasm of the younger candidates. In addition, some would say he didn't have the sense he was born with. On one occasion, he called a potential voter in Iowa a damn liar. And he's talked to another one in New Hampshire and saying, you're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. It's a bizarre phrase, and it sure made the news. Biden's career as a presidential candidate has been entertaining because the gaffes that he made, and for which he has developed quite a reputation, they just kept coming. On one occasion, he referred to Donald Trump as George, on more than one occasion, he told his audience that he was running for the U.S. Senate. And in a virtual visit with Charlemagne the God, a black radio and television personality, Biden made an astonishing statement. He said, quote, If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black, unquote. What? Charlemagne definitely is black, and a lot of his viewers are also. According to reports, more than a few were highly offended. So we get to election day and election night. There have been a lot of issues relating to the voting. Republicans thought that mail-in ballots were subject to deep fraud, and it did turn out that some Mailbags had been thrown out, tossed out, left on the side of the road, and so forth. And these mailbags contained ballots. Of course, there have always been absentee ballots where you can request a ballot and mail it in, but you request it. Mail-in ballots are different. In this case, the mail-in ballots were sent out without a request to millions of people around the country. And some people got more than one ballot. Some people got multiple ballots. And this leads the way to a certain kind of fraud where if you're at home 
and you have three ballots for one person, and maybe somebody lived with you once but isn't there anymore, and you're tempted to send in a ballot under that person's name in addition to your own ballot. So in effect, you voted twice, and that's illegal. This is the kind of fraud that we're talking about. And when you have millions of ballots out there, and this is possible, then fraud may be a real concern. Now, I said before that this was an election unlike any other election we have had in our lifetime, certainly, and maybe in American history. And one of the most interesting things about election night is that we had no results. We went to bed very late on election night, and we didn't know who won the election. Was it Joe Biden or Donald Trump? We didn't know. And I don't know that that's ever happened before. We knew that was possible, but somehow we hoped that there would be a conclusion. Some people projected that there would be a landslide for Trump or that there would be a blue wave for Biden. Neither of these things happened. In fact, this race was very, very close. So close that it was very difficult for the anchors who were covering the election night news to make predictions and to call races. In the end, it all came down to the fact that, as I and many others predicted, the huge number of mail-in and absentee ballots overwhelmed the precincts where they had to be counted, and there just was not enough time or enough manpower to count them all before the end of election day. In Pennsylvania, it was predicted that the final totals might not be available before Friday, three days after election day. And Pennsylvania is an important state with 20 electoral votes, and that could make the difference between who wins the 2020 presidential election. Americans are just going to have to be patient, and maybe it may give us all time to cool our heels and not rush out to fuel more demonstrations and riots. Maybe. You know, I think that it's time for us all to take stock of where we are as a country, as a nation, as Americans. We have a choice. We can continue to do what we've been doing and watch our country slowly go down the drain in a morass of broken dreams and lost hope. Or we can put an end to the riots, the destruction, the hate, because they have to end if we are going to survive as a nation, as a country, as America, as free people. So where do we go from here? Well, a lot depends on how this 2020 presidential election is finally resolved. Because the two men, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, have very different visions of America. And whoever wins in the end, that's the president we will have to live with for the next four years. You know, over the last few months, even while we grappled with the virus and tried to stay safe in the heart of a pandemic, about a free market economy 
versus socialism, about climate change and hydrocarbon emissions. And we found ourselves getting further and further apart. Our differences became the armor that we wore to separate ourselves from those who disagreed with us. And if we tried to reach out to those on the other side, we were frequently rebuffed. Friendships were broken. Families were disrupted. People were even fired from their jobs because of their political beliefs. And it's enough. What we have become is not what we are supposed to be. And it's time to fix what's broken and put America, like Humpty Dumpty, back together again. We've come a long way since the brave men in Philadelphia risked their lives to sign their names to the Declaration of Independence that promised us the God-given rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It takes courage to cross those lines in the sand that we drew to divide us and to reach out to our friends and neighbors and mend our broken relationships. We need to remember how to carry on civil discourse, even on difficult subjects, to learn from each other instead of shutting each other out of our lives. The next few days and weeks and months are likely to be difficult for about half of us. The race for president was so close that the country is about evenly divided between Trump supporters and Biden supporters. But the race is over, and when all the dust has settled, if our candidate has won, we will be happy that the future we chose for our country won the day. And we have the future we chose to look forward to. But if our candidate did not win, we may be facing a future of uncertainty because the differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden are so huge and the policies that they stand for are nearly diametrically opposed. So if our candidate did not win, our fears for America may be difficult to overcome. And it is then that we will need more than ever the friendships in our lives that will give us support through what may be a very difficult time. Over the next few days, things will become clearer. We will know who has won the election, and we will have a better grasp on the kind of future we are likely to see in the America we have as a country chosen. I pray that whoever ultimately wins this election, that God will give him the wisdom to lead us well and give us the peace of mind to make the very best of our future for ourselves and our country. Now, here's a quick story to end the show, and it's a happy one. Has nothing to do with politics. Ha! <sighs> Big sigh of relief. Listen, last year, a firefighter named Joe Warning learned that cancer is the leading killer of firefighters. So on the morning of September 24th, he set out on a 140-mile walk across the state of Michigan, wearing 50 pounds of gear, including coat and pants, an air pack, and his helmet. The hike took him four days to complete, and he raised $54,000 
which he has pledged to firefighters and their family to help pay for their treatment. The money can also be used for house payments or, if the firefighter loses his battle with cancer, for his funeral. The money that he raised this year will be used to assist 18 firefighters who are now battling cancer. Every firefighter will receive some $2,800 to help with their expenses because of their illness. Now this is a story I can really wrap my head around. Well, the hour is just about over and I want to thank you for spending it with me. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.